have a lot of fun. Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Hello, I'm Mark Severino. I'm a longtime Carl Barks fan. I've been into Carl Barks since I was about seven or eight years old um, and enjoyed the Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge comics. And I am very excited to have the opportunity to be a grown man and talk about kids' comics. And uh, I am fortunate to have a returning co-host with me today, and I'm going to let him introduce himself. Uh, I'm Eric. I am a, not as long as Mark, a fan of Carl Barks. I've been a grown fan who's been a fan of DuckTales and exploration of the Disney comics. And uh, I'm looking forward to enjoying my promotion from uh, guest to guest host. (laughs) That's right. Excellent. So, Eric, I gave you a little bit of a kind of a caveat or a warning ahead of time that um, this one is not one of my favorite comics, but um, I don't want to... Um, I don't want to give it short shrift because today we're talking about kind of uh, an unusual story. This one is called Too Many Pets. This is from 1943, September. That's the same month that we talked about Donald and the Mummy's Ring. And that's because this comic book was um, included in that same one. This is a very rare case where there were two full-length stories in one comic. They were both published in Four Color 29, the the old one-shot series. This was the B story, very much the B story. And truth be told, you know, I I debated a little bit about whether to include this one in the chronological, you know, list of official long adventure stories. And so this this podcast is not that. This podcast is not us doing every one of them. The the bark stories are pretty pretty well delineated in the long adventure stories and in the short usually 10-page gag stories. And this one is not really much of an adventure. Um, it's not a 10-page gag story. It's as long as the adventure stories. And so, you know, I kind of took the opportunity to sit down and think about what, what's my criteria for these longer stories and which ones are we going to do episodes for. And I decided uh, kind of arbitrarily, but not really, to basically do the cutoff at 15 pages, which is 50% more than the 10-pagers. The so that might seem kind of an obscure thing to worry about, but, you know, I had to make a dividing line somewhere. Um, this one at least does have some... Uh, intrigue, some danger. So, you know, it's not to say that it's not an adventure at all. That, that This one is different in a few ways. And so this is a story, just like the title suggests, in which the nephews have too many pets. Um, they're going to get an ultimatum from their uncle Donald, and they have to get rid of them. But through a technicality, they convince him that they can keep uh, a monkey that they get from an organ grinder. Donald eventually tires, quickly tires of the monkey, 
and he sells it to a sinister person, um, and the nephews realize that he seems to have some plans for that monkey. Um, kind of an unusual one um, in a few ways, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about... We, we talked last episode, I had Ryan on. You you and I know Ryan very well for a long time. We, we had already talked about um, what had happened during this month in history. Obviously, we're still in the height of World War II. We will be for a few more episodes. This one doesn't have cover art by Barks, which is kind of unusual just because it was the B story. Um, there was actually even a 10-pager sandwich between these. So he was like really prolific for this specific issue. And um, I mentioned that this one's pretty unusual. This one was actually started uh, by another writer named Meryl Damaris. Um, he, he abandoned the story. Apparently he got fed up with working on it or he was overwhelmed in his other role. But, um, I didn't know this. He was actually, he worked with Floyd Gottfordson who did the Mickey Mouse comic strip. So I, I thought Floyd Gottfordson did those on his own before I was researching this. But um, I learned that he had a lot of collaborators, including this guy. So um, this is kind of like the first story you did where Barks, uh, you know, collaborated with Hannah for, for Donald Duck Finds Pirate Gold. So you kind of are getting slotted into these unusual ones here. That's right. <laughs> so I, I noted in researching this one, too, that... Um, the, it's assumed that this might have actually started as a Mickey Mouse story since um, Maris was the one who worked on it. And they gave, they basically gave it to Barks, and he reworked it, he polished it, he developed an ending. But, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of interesting. Sure. I could see that dealing with World War II saboteurs was much more of a Mickey thing, I believe. Yeah, exactly. The mysteries and secrets and stuff was much more of a... Mickey Mouse thing, and I just don't know how well this would have played with the Pluto scenario and uh, too many pets. I mean, I guess if Pluto was getting jealous or something, but uh, who knows? Right. No, you're right. I, I think that's more of a hallmark of the Mickey stories. Have you read any of those Gottfordson ones? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I have. I'm not that familiar with the writers of all of these. Um, right. I've read some old Mickey stuff. Yeah, um, if you read old Mickey. No Ch chances are pretty good that it was by Floyd Gottfordson. He's he's phenomenal, and and you know I'm talking a little bit about Floyd Gottfordson again because this is not this one's not the strongest of Barks' works. No, no, it's not. <laughs> um, but it but it definitely has its merit. Um, another little bit of interesting trivia that I found, you know, there was a write up. I had I had a graphic novel that um, reprinted this one, and mm. you know they. The editor of that, he kind of had a little write-up about it, and he described um, Barks having spent a lot of his youth working on ranches, um, working around animals. Uh, mm. Barks apparently was fond of talking about how he was, um, he, he, used, he spent some time as a mule skinner, Oof. but not a very efficient one. <laughs> and I don't like that, the mental image that that brings up. Mules are tough, man. That's yeah. all I gotta say. <laughs> um, so let's let's talk just a little bit more background, kind of about the the era and the time before we summarize this story. To me, the really interesting kind of time capsule thing, the historical artifact in this story, is the organ grinder. 
have have you sure. ever have you ever seen an organ grinder, Eric? Organ grinder with a monkey in real life. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't know that I have. No, like in pop culture, um, growing up watching pop culture in the '80s, it felt like we might expect to see organ grinders all over the place. But right. Um, and and reading this story got me like to thinking about it and wondering, you know, how did that become a thing? And so I got I got a little bit down the rabbit hole with organ grinders. Um, but apparently organ grinders became popular in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, and, and they were first popular mostly in Italy. And then they then then they spread to Europe and then they spread to America. And um, by maybe not this time, a little bit earlier, I think they were probably waning around this time. But um, apparently they were like a huge nuisance in New York City. And uh, Mayor LaGuardia, who my Italian grandmother was very fond of, um, he banned the instrument, the old like barrel organ from the streets in 1935 because of the congestion and the begging and... And you know some Italian um, Italian stereotypes, stereotypes and, and just uh, attitudes of the time. And I guess organized crime was kind of kind of wrapped up in it and renting them out to the grinders. Uh, and apparently the monkeys were a real thing. They usually use ca- capuchin monkeys. So that that to me is fascinating, right? Like that we we talked in our first episode about how that one looked kind of timeless, but this one looks super dated. Yes. <laughs> like that's that's a pretty big signifier. Yeah. Um, this one would play much differently now. Uh, so for notable appearances, we don't really have any notable appearances. We've just got Donald and the nephews, and then a couple of um, one-off characters, the the grinder that we mentioned and. Jingo the monkey and the the spy. So um, let's go ahead, go through the story itself. So at the beginning of Too Many Pets, we've got Donald on a classic rampage. Um, And I do think this is very Barksy and we'll we'll see a lot of this. You know, he is, he's in spring cleaning mode or something and he is venting and raging at all of the nephew's pets that are um, gumming up his his cleaning. Yeah, so, I wonder, they never say how many pets there are, but you just keep seeing them, seeing them in the panels, and he references them, so it's like, yeah. how did we get this back? Yeah, we've got puppies and turtles and a frog and uh, a canary or some bird and a cat. Yeah, he's. I, I kind of understand where he's coming from. It definitely is too many pets. Um, so on on the next page... Uh, Donald gives them an ultimatum. He says, um, well, not even ultimatum. He dictates that they're getting rid of the pets. He is giving them all to something called the Pet Society. They're they're asking, are we never going to be allowed to have pets? He tells them no, and he gives them a pretty specific but broad statement that um, no, not unless it's something different. And he, he gives a list of all the common uh, pets you might have. No more cats, dogs, birds, Frogs, bugs, ants, mice, bats, fish, or reptiles. Conveniently leaving out monkeys. Indeed. I just, I love this picture of the kids because it's so true to kids. They will hear everything you say and your intent is get my meaning. And they say, no, I listened to what you said and you didn't say this. That's right. So I ignore everything else. Kids are good rules, lawyers. Yeah. 
All right, so Donald, um, in the next page, Donald goes back in the house uh, and he gets ready to take a soothing bath. He reflects on um, on what he said and considers whether he was too harsh. But uh, just as he gets into the bath or is about to, their frog that they missed jumps into his robe and um, upsets him again. And the last panel on this page, we see him cutting a switch, uh, an old tree branch that they would have called a switch to get ready to... Uh, and it's, pre it's, it's a pretty funny panel. He says, I'll make it up to them now. But... Um, that's definitely a, a sign of the times, right? Oh, boy, howdy. Oh, yes. And, and again, I don't know about you, but this was a very common depiction. I saw this in comics and cartoons all the time. Yes. And yes. you would not see this today. This would, no. this would definitely be viewed as abusive. Yeah. Um, the nephews are trudging downtown, looking very forlorn. And they come across an organ grinder with a monkey. Um, and uh, I got to say, the monkey's really cute. It's, I think, a nice little bit of art design. Um, we, we hear the organ grinder is talking in very stereotyped accented Italian, saying he likes kids. Um, and, and they really appreciate his frolicking. And they wish out loud that they could have a pet like him. And at that point, the organ grinder turns around and we get a good look at him. And he is just the, the most Disney st uh, Italian stereotype. Yes, yes he is. Yeah, that you could imagine. And he offers to, um, he offers to give them the monkey. And, um, yeah, that's so many things in this comic. I'm like, yeah, that's really, really dated. But knowing the times like i know i can see where they're going yeah this was just shorthand for this is an italian yeah i get a kick out of this as as half italian myself so i really appreciate uh stereotyped depictions of <laughs> of my people in media because it's usually it's usually a lot more gentle than than many groups get it True. <laughs> So um, the nephews start to pool their money, but he explains that, no, he, he doesn't mean to sell Jingo, that he would like to give Jingo away to them because um, he just really wants a good home because he got drafted that same day. Okay. Yeah, and, and this was really striking to me because um, in most Bark stories, even during this era, you don't really see like a direct mention of the war. Um, right. th that's not to say there are none of them, but um, it's not it's not very common at all to, to kind of see the war intrude like that. Um, and then before he gives them Jingo, he does warn them about Jingo's one little quirk. If you put your hands behind your head in kind of the universal relaxing posture, he gets enraged and he throws whatever he can get at you. That's not foreshadowing at all. No, not at all. And they'll make sure to, to go back to this to make to make sure we remember this a couple of times. Um, you know, this is that kind of convenient plot device that uh, you know we don't we're not supposed to question it. This just kind of moves moves the story forward. So it gives the monkey a quirk. It does. It does. And I like Jingo. He's cute. All right. So on the next page, um, the nephews are bringing. Jingo back to and, and they're debating how they're going to break the news to their uncle 
and uh, they see him with that dreaded switch in his hand, um, and and they plan to send Jingo ahead to kind of um, soothe him ahead of time and make him more open to it. So Jingo rings the bell. The organ grinder has explained to them how smart he is, that he understands almost everything you say. So they give him the instructions to go ring the bell, and um, he presents Donald with an apple, and again, um, for reasons of plot, Donald thinks that he's a boy, a little boy instead of, obviously, he's a monkey. And so Donald accepts the apple. Um, I also like that, you know, during this, like, post-depression era and, uh, you know, war scarcity era, apples are a treat, right? That's something mm -hmm. else that I see in, in media from this time. And so right. Donald um, chomps into the apple and he realizes that was a monkey. He goes to look for the monkey and while he's distracted, the nephews bring him in and they have uh, Jingo serve Donald a nice tray of treats, uh, milk and donuts, I think. Um, oh, I like this part where um, Jingo goes and starts a record because um, that was kind of a treat, seeing uh, an old phonograph in Donald's record collection. Yeah, it looks like this version of Donald's got uh, a pretty nice, pretty nice setup. Yeah, I'm kind of curious if that, that was an actual song that they just made it up, going on the uh, in that panel. I, I definitely Googled it, and it's definitely not a real song. <laughs> but it is Donald's favorite, so... So I guess sure. that that's canon, right? We've just identified Donald Duck's favorite song, and um, one of us needs to update the Wikipedia page. Yes. So the nephews catch Donald pondering out loud. This monkey is so helpful. They rules lawyer Donald into agreeing to keep Jingo. Who wouldn't want a pet slash butler? Yeah, exactly. They are celebrating that they get to keep Jingo. Donald tells them, hey, stop celebrating, you need to go do your chores. There's some cans that need to be thrown into the salvage box. And again, I, I think that might be a reference to wartime scarcity, right? Gotta go get the cans for the can drives. So um, the nephews are painstakingly throwing the cans in and they get the bright idea to use Jingo's quirk to have him throw the cans at them while they're sitting in the salvage box. Yes, I like how like, hey, I just remembered something. Let's reinforce that plot device. Donald is exercising on the other side of the window in a way that is kind of reminiscent of doing that. And the nephews are too late to stop Jingo from chucking a can through the window and beaming Donald on the head. Donald is upset, of course, and he demands to know who threw it. All of the nephews take the blame instantly. The nephews get ready to take their punishment from that switch. They tell Donald that they want to set a good example for Jingo. That's why they fessed up so quickly. And Jingo, or Donald orders Jingo to do the spanking. But uh, Jingo refuses. He breaks, the, um, he breaks the switch over his knee, sending Donald into a rage. And then on the next page, um, it's basically a sequence where Jingo has um, gone missing in the house, and he's uh, causing some chaos, breaking a jam jar, um, messing up Donald's kitchen. That continues on to the next page. There's more chaos. Uh, we're just supposed to get the idea here that... Um, Jingo is causing a huge mess in Donald's clean house. Monkey's good and stuff. Yep. 
I, I understand that uh, they will do sometimes what they see. Um, so eventually he falls into the garage. He lights on a very cool looking old fashioned lawnmower. And I liked, I liked seeing Donald crying over his tulips, his pansies, his rare never blooming hypodermicus. <laughs> which, Did you Google that? It's not a real flower. I didn't Google that one. I'm guessing it's not. I, I, I chuckled. Never blooming. That's just great, right? Like, that, that's genuinely. We've got the consequences. Donald is furious, and he says, you've got to get rid of that monkey. He tells them they can't even come back into the house until they've figured out you know what to do with him and that's that's definitely old-fashioned you're not gonna kick your kids out of the house I hope um, they realize that they can't even go back in the house for their coats so they order Jingo to go in through the attic and uh, a mysterious man is watching while they give him these instructions now I do want to note in that first panel says Donald is too soft-hearted to spank Jingo yeah but yet he was also wanting Jingo to spank the boys who she's happy with spanking, which is just, I love the, uh, right. I love the convenience in the writing. Child abuse, not animal abuse, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Right. This, this mysterious guy who, you know, he's, he's very creepy looking, but he's also very mm. generic. We, we just had a couple of podcasts where, um, some version of Pete was the villain, right? The one that you right. participated in. He was called Black Pete, and then the one that Ryan was on, the Mummy's Ring, um, uh-huh. it was there was a Black Pete lookalike in that one. I think again, old Disney habits die hard. But this guy sure. is just kind of generic, sinister, and he notes that the monkey responds to commands, and he wants to buy the monkey. And the nephews are outraged. They don't want Donald to sell him. But um, he goes through with it, and the nephews are uh, left to cry. Um, we, we learn on the next page what the man's purpose for Jingo is. He is near a factory complex, and we see him um, on, on the phone, again, a very old-school-style phone, um, talking to someone about leaving some plans near the window. He's using Jingo to, um, to steal some plants. So he's up in various military plans. Yes, no doubt. He gives him the directions to go in through the window and take the plans, but before he can return him to the window washer station that the spy is at, Jingo starts to miss the nephews, and the spy sees Jingo um, go in the direction and figures that he's returning to the nephews. Jingo's like, oh, I miss those boys I spent an hour with. I, I know. I to play with them. Yeah, very, very convenient. But they had a great time together, right? So Sure. So Jingo comes back to the nephews with the plans, um, but they don't realize what it is. They just know that it's thick paper that seems perfect for an, for making paper airplanes. Um, and I, I thought it was a sign of the times that they were imagining, you know, mine's a P-47. Mine's a torpedo bomber, clearly uh, right out of the war. And then... Yep. Huey puts a pin on the nose of one so it'll stick stick to things. And he lets Jingo oh, no. throw it, which, uh, you know, predictably it lands right on Donald's butt. Before Donald can get mad, he realizes what the papers, what the documents are, and he becomes very scared. And I can't remember if we've already seen that the plans are for something called a bomb site, But at some point, 
they mentioned that that's what the plans are for. And that wasn't a term that I was familiar with. I assume it's like a precursor to radar or something. But Well, in my, in my extensive watching of old World War II movies, uh, no, bomb sites, you know, it's for the bombers, so you want to be able to get an accurate picture right. of where you're dropping. But being that high elevation, it's not so much a sensor like a radar, but it's just a magnification application magnification device of how to get a better clear shot right. of where your bombs are going to go so you can be more accurate like a viewing is, screen or something like that yeah um with the prevalence of the bombing in world war ii it gets the bomb sites get used a lot as the military you know design mcguffin yeah because obviously at this time they didn't know about you know uh, the manhattan project so it's just what could something the general public could be familiar with that right. would be something they'd know? Yeah, I'm sure a few years later, uh, just a few years later, these plans would have been having to do with uh, with nuclear weapons. No. So Donald um, tells them to hide the plans, and he's going to go after the cops. I guess he doesn't have a phone at home because he sure. leaves them. And on the next page, they've just hidden the plans under the bed when they get a knock at the door. And, and it is the spy, and he demands, he does, He says he doesn't care about the monkey, um, Demunk, as he calls him. He just cares about the plans. And the nephews, the nephews start to stall him. He barges in and um, he grabs them and he he ties them up. And this is, uh, you know, kind of kind of disturbing, right? Because he gives them like a tickle torture and then he uh, escalates to um, his other method, which is to tie candles to their feet and let the candles run down. Um, so while he's waiting for them to talk, he leans back in the classic relaxation posture. Oh no! And of what course, happened? yeah, we've got Jingo who um, does what Jingo does best, and he brains the guy with a vase. And uh, I mean, this is this is a funny animal comic, so it just knocks him out, I'm sure. But in the real world, that that guy's dead. <laughs> Yes. So Jingo's saved the day, and on the last page, Donald couldn't be more pleased. He's beaming, um, and he uh, he leans back to enjoy a, you know the end of a busy day, and he puts his hand behind his head, and Jingo brains him with a coconut. And the comic ends with the nephews trying to fan him awake and and saying, "Oh yeah, we we should probably remember to tell him." about that and that is um too many pets any any kind of initial thoughts you have about this one eric well reading it it, it felt very stock and hearing you talk about how somebody else started in girl bar to finish it i can definitely see that that okay this is a story i have to go with it here's the plot it feels very generic. You know, you could have plugged in lots of different people. Nothing in this unique makes me feel like it's a unique Donald or Ducks comic. I mean, maybe him getting angry. Right. But even but even then, when he found the plans, typically when Donald gets angry, he stays angry. He stays hot. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good comic. I mean, it's definitely a, a, an example of its time. I'm not going to say it's bad. Right. I mean, with I mean, it's it's stereotypical, but I didn't realize when it was made, it seems very fitting. And uh, you know, the military, like you were saying, the military aspect of it is a little odd. But I can definitely see where you're saying that this was 
the second adventure in a in a comic this feels like a second adventure not like one like oh hey guys too many pets that's this is gonna be good there's lots of adventure in this one yeah there, there's it a reason feels like an extended the... normal story yeah there's definitely a reason that they put the mummy's ring first you know that was obviously a labor of love um, for Barks and the first one where he got to really do everything himself. I, I agree with you. This one feels very like familiar in its pacing. You know, I kind of like how it starts out uh, a little bit wacky. I, I think one of the reasons that it's nice that we get to include this, even if it's not my favorite, is that it, it it's almost a stand-in for those 10-pagers, you know, because there are so many of them. And, um, you know, the album that I read this in that collected this one... It, it, they included several other of the pet stories because Barks went back to this kind of well a lot. Yeah, and no, they were does. they were great. Like the the three or four other stories in this, I enjoyed them so much more. Um, even though they were quote just ten pagers, just gag stories, but um, but some of those gag stories are um, just wonderfully written and, and very funny with some amazing art. So. You know, I, I don't want to dump on this one too much because, again, he was working within the limitation of, of a story that was already developed. No, and we're not saying it's bad. Yeah. We're just saying he's done better, and it just feels like not his best work, and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, there was not, not too much that stood out to this one. And, again, like the other stories that were next to it were much more enjoyable to me. I took a look, of course, as we always do, uh at the webpage index that is the you know aggregation page for um user submitted reviews and this one had a, a rating of 7.1 uh, out of uh, over 40,000 reviews um it or uh, out of 40,000 some comic stories rather it was ranked 1971 um, and those numbers don't mean too much on their own. So just for perspective, you know, you and I did Pirate Gold. That one had a rating of 7.3. Um, and then Ryan and I did The Mummy's Ring, which was a 7.6. Um, if you look at those stories kind of within all of the comics they're compared to, Pirate Gold was in the top, um, was, was rated higher than 98.4. Uh, percent of all the stories and mummy's ring was rated higher than 99.3 percent so that one's you know very highly rated um this one is is in the top 95th percentile or i guess the top fifth percentile so you know it's barks so it's well regarded but it's definitely not rated as highly as those other ones um Perfect. As far as how it holds up, I did think it was really interesting to get to read this one and, and really see a lot of what was contemporary at that time. You know, see some of those things like the organ grinder and mm -hmm. uh, the references to the World War II planes and the casual corporal punishment. So that, that's always interesting to see. Um, we talk about uh, appearances in other media. Obviously, as is fitting for a comic that's you know not nearly one of his popular ones, this isn't one that's really been adapted. It's been reprinted a few times, of course, not as much as some of the others. Um, Barks never did a, any of his oil paintings or lithographs. 
featuring this, and to my knowledge, there was nothing referencing this in any of the duct. Um, but no, at, I can't. I can't think that there was. But as I mentioned, you know, Barks. This was the first of his pet stories, which he went back to a lot, and he did some great stories featuring those. Sure. I, I like to talk about what there is, you know, in terms of educational value. Some of these stories have some interesting things that we might learn about history or mythology or, um, you know, geography. I didn't really take anything too interesting to this one. You know, by, by nature, it's not one of the Barks sort of travelogue ones. No. So it doesn't really have that going. But again, I don't want to dump on this one too much. It's still, no. it's, it's a Bark story and it's still still very worth reading and, and uh, very worthwhile. Yes. Um, so Eric, do you have any other thoughts regarding too many pets? Well, like you're saying, that this obviously there's no lithograph or any kind of oil paintings based off this book, off this story. And I have to really agree with you like obviously because there's not really any of that scenery or those background or those white type of shots that he uses whether it's the transitioning from you know from the ship to the sea like we did in, you know or the ship at sea where we like we did on the uh finds pirate gold um but there were a couple things in here just artistically that i, I appreciated and that is right there in that page you're looking at it is they use it a couple that he uses it i think once or twice is the shadow of the person in the foreground in shadow and the person that in the part in the in the background is in color, just to give that emphasis what's going on in the scene by using them completely in shadow. He doesn't have to do that. Very artistically, it's a very good um, contrast to what's going on. Yeah. There's this scene, and then there's another scene later on where Donald is um, yelling at the boys at the window, and Donald's all in dark, and the, but he's the one who's talking, and the, the emphasis is the boys and the reaction. I think. And it's just, it's very neat to see that that's not the kind of stuff that's generally viewed or used in a comic um, for the kids' audience. See, the other two panels I really enjoyed um, was one when they were all three boys were looking, going, okay, we got to get the Donald, Uncle Donald to appreciate the monkey. And they're all looking over the hedge, and they're all in perfect row, hats all the same, and Jingo is right there with them, like he's one of the crew. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was and cool. Just perfectly in sync, like, okay, what are we doing, guys? He's in on it. And uh, and then I, I thought that was very well done. And then the scene where um, Jingo is breaking the switch. Oh yeah, where he cracks it over his knee. He's very expressive. The artwork and everything in there is very demonstrative of hey, this is a monkey who's he recognizes what's going on. He's not gonna do it, and he's mad about it. Yeah, you're right about the expression on his face, and I'm and glad I that was really good. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and I'm I'm glad that you remembered. I had asked you to mention your favorite panel, and I forgot to introduce that. But um, that's funny because you you mentioned two of the ones that I had thought of, which that that switch breaking scene definitely a panel definitely stuck out to me. But um, the long panel that is on, I think it's on page nineteen or so. But the one where the nephews are waving goodbye. Um, to Jingo. It shows them looking forlorn, Jingo waving back, Donald looking pleased over the the hedge. Um, that, that one has, it's just a really cool panel and it really sums up, I think, the story. Um, yeah. And it kind of shows, you know, Donald's kind of a bit of a villain. Not, not maybe a bad guy, but he's definitely not a great 
he's not a very positive character in this one. And I think that's part of why I don't really care for this one compared to sure. a lot of them. And we see this more in some of the earlier ones where that's a little bit more of his characterization. Yeah. So, um, thank you very much. I, I always like talking. I, I love talking ducks. Um, you know, I told Ryan last week that it's so nice to get the chance to talk about these in real life because, you know, apart from you growing up, this was a thing that I was just hugely into, but it always felt weird being, you know, a teenager who really liked duck stories and I couldn't really talk about them much in real life. So I'm, I'm going to make up, (laughs) I'm going to make up for lost time. Uh, the next podcast that we do, um, is kind of getting back to the adventure mold and it is the story Frozen Gold, which I haven't read in many years, so I'm excited to revisit that. Oh, I forgot to mention this episode and last that um, I looked up the upper value of this comic. You know, this can count for last episode, too. So there was there's one documented sale of a 9.0 condition, which would be like... Ooh really near mint yeah that's nice yeah in in november of 2008 that sold for twenty thousand dollars lower range you know i assume most of them are a 1.0 would be two hundred dollars so sure uh this one's pretty highly valued because it's got two full-length bark stories and a 10 pager and uh as you know but it's mainly valued of course for the mummies all right well eric thank you again for joining me and i look forward to having you back soon yeah my pleasure Nice one.